everybody, and welcome to episode 37 of Tell Me What You Know. Today is Sunday, January the 5th. This is our first recording in the year 2020, and this year is off to a bang. Everybody was super hopeful coming into a new year, as they often are. And now Australia is on fire. <laughs> the Iranian parliament is chanting death to America. We're off to a great Happy start Happy New here. Year. <laughs> <laughs> Happy Did 2020 new just year. end already? Hey, if you're scared about the future of society, <laughs> welcome to Tell Me What You Know. I saw that uh, Iran, Russia, and China are doing joint naval exercises right this now. This is fantastic. <laughs> Everything's fine. Everything's fine. So... Maybe take <laughs> take thirty minutes of brainless talk. Yeah, learn get something your, about get your mind off of, off of what's going on in the world. <laughs> it's out of your control anyway. Yeah, nothing you can do. Nope. This is like. Uh, and yeah. luckily, we live in Washington D.C., which is not a target. No, they would never come here. I don't think. Why would they come here? No. Nothing's here. No. Don't come here. Go to like uh, rural Indiana, America. Go to like the. There's a lot hear, of good stuff in like. I hear Topeka is nice this kind of year. <laughs> This time of year, Topeka is quite the place to visit. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's, the firefighter, the fires are crazy. Five hundred million animals I, have died. I, I, I mean, it's absolutely insane. There's like twenty percent of the koalas are left. I heard it was like oh, twenty percent left. Yeah. Oh, I'd heard something that was thirty-three um, percent had been killed. So, I, I, none, none of these are good numbers. <clears throat> no. But uh, some crazy photos too. I, I haven't gone through them. I, I think it's too sad. Yeah, it's, sometimes you got to see those things to realize, like, hey, this is really bad. Yeah. I almost wonder... I'm not even going to bring this up. Go. Do it. Well, I was going to say, uh, I know a bunch of people are trying to find places to donate to. Yeah. But I wonder if... Do you think it's too early? Like, if... if no. No, I mean, I don't mean I don't mean it in the sense of um, don't donate. Right. I'm just saying, uh, with the exception of the immediate issue of putting these fires out, then dealing with the longer term rehabilitation of like planting new trees. Or yeah, I mean, stuff. like, I, I it, it's almost seeming like such a large issue. Well, so apparently the firefighting force over there is completely volunteer. Wow. And so because they haven't, because they're fighting these fires, this, this is what I read, because they're fighting these fires like 100% full time right now, they yeah. can't hold enough other jobs to have like the government pay for their healthcare or something like that. So can this money go to just paying these guys? Right. So you can pay, well, you can like donate to the American Red Cross or the Red Cross of Australia over there. You uh can donate to, there's like obviously tons of like animal conservation conservation things. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there's stuff you can help donate to like help these firefighters like pay bills and stuff like that. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe that was just a stupid idea I had. Please donate. Well, I mean, donate as much as you can. This isn't going to be something that, just donating now is it's gonna have to, it's gonna be like a years long right, process. Right, so it's gonna be well, and also I feel like the Amazon story is just sort of oh, this is like a billion it. times I mean, better than that, or better a billion times like worse than the Amazon thing as well in terms crazy. of like acreage being burned, right, and right, like wildlife being yeah. lost. Well, let's get in a happier topic. Sure, <laughs> we're going into yours. It's yes. not as much. Yeah, well, it's not as gruesome as the other two things we've already talked about here. So. <laughs> It is the year 2020, mm-hmm. so I want to think about 100 years back. Michael, tell me what you know about the Roaring Twenties. Wow. wow, that's kind of a cool topic. Um, so culturally, like the flappers and like the dancing and the like underground speakeasy drinking, so prohibition was, mm-hmm. was going on, um, and then a bunch of uh, speculation, you know, uh, a lot of stock market speculation that sort of ended the Roaring Twenties. It did. Uh, that led to just a huge, you know, uh, recession and and well, uh, 
depression. I would say it was a great one. A great depression. <laughs> yeah. It's quite great. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's almost like, uh, so yeah, the rowing twenties, what else is going on? Like organized crime was expanding. Also maybe feel like a lot of the stories we've been told about the rowing twenties are always around these topics. So maybe that's what I know. Yeah. Uh, oh, maybe I mean, there's I a lot more stuff going on besides like, the rise of boring. Al Capone and you know, all that stuff. Well, but it's very interesting. We're going to talk about that. Same yeah. 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 Today. Uh, well, I'm trying to tell you what I know. Oh, sorry. So yeah, Al Capone was in Chicago. That was a big, uh, did you watch Boardwalk Empire? Yeah. Yeah. Good show. Um, Nucky Thompson. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jersey Atlantic City. Yeah. Yeah. Lucky Luciano. Lucky Luciano. Yeah. Um, what is about the Roaring Twenties? Um, well, I mean, it would have been right after World War One, Right. So World War One ended in 1919. Yeah. So yeah, going into that was just probably a bunch of optimism, which probably led to the downfall of the aftermath, right? So we're going to have eight years of partying. But no drinking, well, even though everybody was drinking. <laughs> yeah, no legal drinking. The, the, yeah, the, I mean, it was a total failed experiment in a lot of ways. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, I mean, so give me some more. Tell me, you tell, did, me, tell me what you found out. You did really well. Yeah, nice. You did really well. Um, so we'll just, I don't really even know where to start now because we kind of covered it all. So I'm just going to kind of just go through some of my <laughs> yeah, notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, if we look at like economically, the economy at the time. So mass production was a huge thing going into obviously the world war and then afterwards as, as well. So like the model T had already been in production, but cars were becoming something that everybody owned at this point. It mm-hmm. wasn't just like 300,000 people. It was like millions of, of people were owning so cars now. Right. The model T was big one in, in 1920. Yeah, they, like that was really the, the growth period. They essentially ended its production in 1924, I think. Mm-hmm. And then the model a came out after that. But, uh, and then general motors was coming around as well. It was just a big time for consumerism, mm-hmm. uh, after the industrial revolution and all that kind of stuff. Modular parts, right. Fixing one thing and it can still work. Right. Yeah. And so the car, uh, like the car impact, the, the commercialization of the cars mm-hmm. impacted other parts of the economy, like mm-hmm. steel production, highways, infrastructure, uh, motels and service stations, car dealerships, and also just like a movement from core urban cities to the suburbs. Mm-hmm. You a, can live further out because right. you'll drive in. Even though yeah. people had stopped at the, in the 1920s, this is the first time pe- more people were living in urban cities than in rural America. Mm-hmm. So you had the, you know, cars were, were a big impact there. Radio was huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, started, it was like the first time that things were being mass advertised across the country. So, you know, you had people listening to the same kind of music and being uh, offered the same kind of products and, and all over the country. At this right. Point. Right. Uh, medicine wise penicillin was finally, people had been working for years to what to, uh, to come up with what eventually would be penicillin in mm-hmm. the 1920s. Yeah. Great a, drug, a cure all. That's a big one. Yeah, <laughs> that was a big one. Uh, Charles Lindbergh made his first, made the first uh, trans or er, transatlantic flight. Transatlantic flight. Solo. Yeah. Mm hmm. He went from uh, Long Island to Paris, France. Mm-hmm. A solo, a single-engine plane. Do you know how long it took him? Uh, Let's, what, what is that flight now? That flight's like from, from New York to Charles de Gaulle would be what? Uh, seven, seven hours? Seven hours. Yeah, seven, like yeah, six, seven hours. Right. Um, I, I bet it took, I think it took him 18 hours. 33 and a half hours. 33 and a half. That's right. You know, there's a really, really, really good... Um, movie with him uh movie with um jimmy stewart mm. playing charles Lindbergh. fantastic movie but it, it it a lot of it takes place with him on the plane going flashback into yeah. like how he's doing I mean, it's just a, fin- a a amazing story yeah spirit of st louis and, st. and louis coming from like a mailman like a mail carrier uh to to yeah doing that that run i mean he couldn't see out the front of the plane 
Oh, really? I didn't it's, know that. It's just a gas tank going to the single engine thing. So, so to, to see out the front, to land and stuff, he had mirrors on, out the, the windows. Out the side? And he was so tired by the time he gets there that landing, I mean, he was like hallucinating in some ways. Yeah. And when he lands, I mean, the, the Paris was going nuts yeah they gave him some huge french award yeah. when he got back to dc they were like had warships out for him yeah. and stuff like that it was which if you think about it it's a really huge accomplishment right. that is that completely changed the entire course of human history yes crazy absolutely anyways um <clears throat> cinema wise they were uh they started having movies with sound mm-hmm. at this point. yeah yeah some talkies that there was a lot of inventions that came out in this time i can't remember what they were all called but a lot of different uh like this recording instruments and mm-hmm. things like that that helped mm-hmm. uh, people like the record player uh, yeah. I think comes comes out around phonograph here. Phonograph, stuff like that. yeah right so the phonograph was big as well so that, you know they they people were listening to the same type of music all over the country it was kind of this like this spread of of culture I guess that impacted the entire country rather than just pockets across the across America right right, right. something going on in LA could affect Chicago mass and communication and, and yeah. mass advertising and mass yeah. consumerism yeah uh, so we'll get into society a little bit. Mm-hmm. We touched a lot on this, uh, jazz. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of going to go out of order here, but they had the great migration in the 1920s where especially black Southerners mm-hmm. were moving more to the Northern urban city, uh, city centers, mm-hmm. mostly because, uh, during the war there were tons of jobs. Mm-hmm. And then after the war, obviously to escape the more racist South, right? Right. So they stayed up North. Uh, a lot of them ended up in Harlem. So they had the Harlem Renaissance there. There was just tons of, apparently there was tons of housing in Harlem. They had the Harlem Renaissance where there was just writers and artists and, and musicians, W.B. Du Bois, Langston Hughes, uh, Duke Ellington. Mm-hmm. And so in these, we, we spoke about prohibition, but they had these speakeasies where, you know, you could, I guess, drink. If you know where it is. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so jazz was huge in these places. Mm-hmm. And they would have flappers, flapper girls dancing and they'd have different dances come out and jazz music and it just kind of permeated all this culture basically. Mm-hmm. And that spread to Chicago and spread to other tons of other cities as well. Hmm. Um, so that's where they say jazz kind of started was sort of the movement from New Orleans to right. Harlem. Oh, I guess they're in this Harlem Renaissance. Yeah. yeah. Huh. Um, kind of interesting because it, it a hundred years later, we kind of st- we're definitely seeing this right now, especially with like the OK Boomer type thing going around. Yeah, right? yeah. But in the 1920s, like not everybody was for this new uh, explore your sexuality, explore your you know do do fun things, that kind of stuff. They wanted to kind of go back to uh, what Warren G. Harding said: the return to normalcy, to the more Victorian era, right? So that's what kind of where prohibition came from, right? But they you know the long dresses and everybody being rigid and all that kind of stuff, the decency. So it was like these you know the older folks versus the younger folks, yeah. Still at that point, which yeah. is what's obviously still happening today, which is a big driver of culture. The right. People holding on to whatever whatever they feel is normal for them, and people trying to change it to something new and the that they own, that they feel ownership of. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. There was actually, a, I think, a really good quote from uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald. Let me find it real quick. Oh, yeah. I mean, the Great Gatsby set in exactly. there. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Let me find this. Yeah, he was saying, uh, people over 40 can seldom be permanently convinced of anything. At eight, at, uh, at 18, our convictions are hills from which we look. At 45, there are caves in which we hide. Mm. So he was oh, saying, really get good. out of here, you olds. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're stuck. You're, you're not going to change. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this is old versus new thing. You know, the, the, you had the the older majority that they wanted this post-war return to normalcy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in contrast, you had young folks that were like, 
hey, get out of here with this Victorian lifestyle. Uh, I want more open-mindedness. I want my freedom yeah. uh, my, and, and independence and all that kind of stuff. I feel like somebody ran a campaign on the return to normalcy Well, it was message. Warren Harding's it, right, yeah. Yeah, message. Okay. Right, yeah. exactly. Duh. It was his promise. It was his promise, right. yeah. Um, but you had these, so the flapper girls, you know, stereotypical images, this bob haircut. Uh, there, mm-hmm. there's these short, shorter hem dresses, these mm-hmm. little hats, mm-hmm. uh, living out their freedoms. Um, and then there was that group that wanted to increase the morality in the country. So that's where prohibition came in. Right. Right. So on January 17th, 1920, the USA technically became a dry country. Mm-hmm. Uh, that same day, alcohol crime skyrocketed <laughs> and it didn't stop until 13 years later when that, uh, prohibition was repealed. Mm-hmm. Um, I found it funny. So pharmacies could still sell whiskey as a treatment for certain ailments. So pharmac- the amount of pharmacies tripled. Right. There was just huh. ways around all this stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, churches could also get wine for communion. So a lot of folks found God during this time. <laughs> yeah, I love the loopholes. I didn't yeah. realize that was a, uh, a loophole. Um, I read that the American grape industry would sell juice concentrate with warnings that it would turn into wine if, if left, <laughs> like it would ferment and turn into wine if it was left out too long. Uh, hardware stores still sold like this distillery equipment, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So this law was like, Hey, we don't want you guys drinking. But what it essentially did was made uh, a ton of booze experts. Ah, right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, right. Oh, I know how to make it. Right. Yeah. Uh, and this is kind of tangential to that. But several years later when moonshine was still illegal, bootlegging was the rise for NASCAR, like in the 1940s. So people would oh. be driving. Yeah. They'd be running shine down the hills out, outrunning the cops and that kind of thing. Yeah. And that turned into what would be NASCAR eventually. Hmm. Yeah. That's really um, interesting. Yeah. And so then you have, uh, obviously, with it being illegal, who has to enforce these laws? The police. Corruption rose. Right. Right? Right. With corruption rising and booze, illegal booze being a gold mine, organized crime kind of comes full circle there, right? right? Right. So then you get Al Capone, you get Babyface Nelson, Bonnie and Clyde, John Dillinger, you get Lucky Luciano, all those kind of guys, mm-hmm. right? And it's 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 outlawing something that isn't necessarily dangerous so i I feel like the the i feel like they can feel morally um fine with still bootlegging you know breaking the law but you're not really breaking the law in any way in a similar way of people selling marijuana you don't feel like you're necessarily putting somebody at risk with what you're selling them versus somebody selling like heroin or something i mean the mafia was always kind of they, they would stop at hard, harder drugs until they were kind of pushed into... Yeah, it was guns and booze. Gun, yeah, <laughs> right. exactly. No, that's and, and women, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so eventually, I guess that was repealed in 1933, Prohibition was. But before that, uh, you mentioned the speculation. So all of this, this decade or so of like the roaring 20s, right? Where mm-hmm. it's like independence and decadence and go out dancing and listening to new music and feeling hip and kind of ushering in this new cultural wave all comes crashing down on October 29th when the stock market crashed and the great depression began. Mm -hmm. And it was just kind of like a big 180 at that point. Yeah. It's what turned, it was a life of like living for the moment to a life of survival for the next, however long really through the world war two. Right. Yeah. A couple decades. Yeah. But a lot of that was also because we didn't, have modern economics we didn't we didn't um we didn't understand like quantitative easing and i mean a lot of this time the government was like well we got to stop giving money to people we got to stop helping and then it just it pushed people further and further down it wasn't like a 50 percent unemployment rate at one point yeah and then uh i think by 32 it was that and then uh and then that in 32 was with fdr 
Yeah. And yeah, here we go. Yeah. Um, but it was kind of interesting. I was reading another article about kind of just like the similarities from 1920 and 2020. Huh. Um, I mean, they were, they were very, it might've well, been a bit of a stretch, but you see like before this attack on Soleimani, Soleimani or whatever that would yeah, just happened, yeah, yeah. you know, it, you had, especially like Republican, uh, officials, they were, you know, they're shifting their attention from foreign affairs to more domestic matters. Mm-hmm. That was the same thing that was kind of happening in 1920 after World War One. They were like, well, then now that, that, if we had recorded four days ago, this would have made more sense. But because <laughs> now it looks like we're going the opposite now it direction. Looks like, yeah. So one thing I wanted to mention as well that I forgot about was the, the women's rights and the flappers and everything. So they got the right to vote on August 18, 1920. That's right. Huge oh, yeah. thing that I, I left Suffrage. out. I, I skipped through my notes here. Yeah. I kind of bounced around. You, yeah. you knew way too much about the topic. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, so that was the 19th Amendment. Um, we talked about F. Scott Fitzgerald. His wife, Zelda Fitzgerald, uh, was... Uh, kind of known as the first American flapper, right? So she was into these dancing and all this kind of, and all that kind of crap. Um, and actually F. Scott Fitzgerald portrayed her in, as a lot of his like heroine characters and, uh-huh. and his books. Um, the whole like term flapper, I guess, kind of alluded to unconventionalism. So it was a break from the norm that, that came before them. Uh, with this like new, I guess, independence and everything, you saw divorce and premarital sex rates rising mm-hmm. at this time, which was kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. And then also, uh, apparently eating disorders as well. Hmm. I guess, cause they were now, I assume that meant f- for females mostly, but I don't, I don't know. Yeah. It was kind of a weird thing to add into what I was reading, but yeah. well, do we, are we, are we confused by that? Because there's, we're not just, you're not just being bombarded by images all the time back then. I mean, you, when you were taking a picture, you took one picture a year, and the you know the big flash went. Or off. it's like now, like okay, well, I, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm in, not in like a prearranged situation. I can go out and find the the person I want. Right. I want to look my best for them. Right. And then, of course, along with that, some you know eating disorders come about. Right. Right. Got to be thin, but that was kind of weird because I don't know that that was, I don't know if that was like the like in vogue at the time. Like now, mm-hmm. you see on covers of magazines and everything, it's like super fit and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But, huh. That's probably a deeper topic there. I think I'd want to learn more about that. I want to go back to something you brought up just with the parallels between now and then. Mm-hmm. And do you ever, do you, do you think that the 2008 financial crisis, we sort of skipped it because of our quantitative easing? Like our government stepping in and saying, you know, we're going to bail out these larger companies and we're going to sort of just sort of skip, skip the big fallout. Maybe. That, 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 that I'm, I'm wondering if it, if we kicked the can down the road, but we didn't fix the problem, and I wonder if it's still going to come. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, we'll, yeah. To, it's, we'll have to wait and see. But uh, from 19, or sorry, 2010 to 2020 was the first decade, I think, that we didn't have a recession. Hmm. At like, yeah. ever, from what I understand. <laughs> huh. Yeah. I, I didn't, I, I don't know. Um, I, I didn't know that we'd had them every, every single decade, but there was no recession essentially there was no recession in the last 10 years for the first time in history. And right. I mean, I could be completely wrong at that. It's what I read. But, right. Uh, hmm. I think like at the same time, like maybe like the, the growth was a lot slower than it had been at some points as well. So maybe that has something to do with it. Right. Well, a history of the U S economy class I took at Georgia, the big takeaway was 3% growth every year forever hmm. on average is great. Like you don't need, 10% right. growth and, and 
you know, 3% every year is fine. Mm-hmm. Like you don't. And so this greed of chasing larger and larger amounts of growth is usually when you get into problems. Right. So triple A um, rated mortgages that are just crap. Right. Bundled right, up crap. Right. Right. Where it's like you're, you're not actually doing anything to stimulate the economy. You're sort of just doing funny math. Mm-hmm. And, Finding loopholes. And, and, and ultimately, that's going to fall. That's going to crash, right. a la 1928, 1929. Oh, yeah. That's and, um, and, uh, and the 2008 crisis. Yeah. So it's like when, yeah, we just sort of paid for it. Like the government <laughs> was like, yeah, we got it. But that credit is, being, is, is owed by our generation. Here we go. Okay, boomer. Right. And, and we're going to, you know, we're holding the bag. So it, it's definitely an interesting comparison. Yeah, um, and especially coming out of World War One in that time, you, I never really realized just how how similar World War One and World War Two were, mm-hmm. just on, on like almost the same issues. It was just sort of like we're going to punt for thirty years until mm-hmm. we're going to do this again, and um, and 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 figuring out that hey, maybe it's not always the best thing coming out of World War One to just like make sure that your enemy Germany. Is, I mean. Germany's going to have zero growth. Like they, you, we're going to put, we're going to keep our boot on you forever. Right. They, they're going to be like, well, no, like it, you put them in our, you put somebody in a corner, they're going to get desperate. They're going to do something crazy. Kind of feel similar with like Iran right now. Right. I, you know, like just all of the sanctions that we've had on them, everything. Anyway, it's kind of a deeper topic, but uh, it's a, it's a very interesting comparison time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just uh, kind of came across it. I, I wanted to do uh, the roar into. I, I wanted to do prohibition originally, mm-hmm. and then I was like, "Well, it's not, it's twenty twenty now, and that was a hundred years ago." Kind of let's look at yeah. it more holistically here. I was then. reading an article kind of about prohibition. Like the millennial generation has really been interested in like sober living. Oh yeah, there's sober bars and stuff. Sober now. bars now, and I kind of understand where the allure comes from, just because drinking makes you feel like crap. Yeah, I hate it. It's. I mean, yeah. I mean, it it just makes you feel like crap, and um. Yeah, I think in our society we're, we're dealing. We want to feel better more often, mm-hmm. and noticing that you know alcohol kind of is a crappy drug. Kind of sucks. Kind of sucks. Yeah. Um. Anyways, that's uh that's the roaring twenties in a nutshell. Yeah. Well, I I feel like I I should get a degree now. Yeah. You mentioned we <laughs> right. put an entire semester into a uh, twenty minutes. Just hire um, me for your Cliff's notes. Yeah. Well, we're gonna we're gonna go to kind of a zany topic here. <laughs> Smorgy board. <laughs> Uh, Michael, tell me what you know about bird watching. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, other than you go outside and you look for birds, I don't Nailed know. It. I mean, I, th- I think that's pretty much it. I would imagine there's like certain places that people go to find uncommon birds or like, mm-hmm. oh, you can only find the red breasted sparrow and uh-huh. the Appalachian yeah, mountains exactly. in West Virginia yeah, or something like something, that. Yeah. Something or like the yeah. the red headed woodpecker. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Um Yeah, I it's I don't know anything about this other than basically that. Like yeah. what more do you really need to know in your day to day life other than just that's oh, you enough, guys go out and watch birds. That's enough for me to know that I'm not interested. <laughs> <laughs> well, so actually when I first started this topic, I thought it was gonna be like I didn't know where I was going. Mm-hmm. And it actually is pretty interesting. Okay. All right. So, yes, yeah, the observation of birds it can be done with the naked eye, telescopes, binoculars, or also just like recording devices, like just if you heard them. Because a lot of them are, can be difficult to actually spot, but you've spotted their sound. And, and some people think so that that's enough of spotting it. Like you could be you've like, watched it. oh, I know that tweet is, a ra- is some rare bird. I didn't see it. Right. 
but I heard it. Correct. So I watched it. Correct. And, and, <laughs> and the, I watched that bird. Don't tell me I didn't watch well, that so bird. I'll skip to this part, but there's a, um, there's kind of an etiquette here. Okay. An etiquette to in the community of okay. if, if I, every, a lot of these bird watchers, uh, and we're going to call it as it's other, like, well, better known name in the community is birding, birding okay. and they're birders. So birders are people who watch or bird watchers. So birders keep a life log. Do birders, uh, do they bird? Uh, like bird around. Like, like you on bird later? No, I was saying like, you want it like, was it, is the art of like, oh, birding. Birding, birding. Right. You go bird, birding. You bird, yeah, you birding. Okay. Uh, yeah, so birders um, keep a life log. And so there's sort of an etiquette with, with, with this. It'd be like, did you really see it? Like, and so if you have a higher esteem in the community, you're uh, higher status in the community, you're, you're going to be believed. It's not like, be like, oh, there, there are, I didn't really go into this, but I did read about controversies. I was going to ask, if you, didn't, uh, if you don't bring up birdwatching controversies in this episode, <laughs> I'm going to be it was, so upset. There was one, and it was just, I, I couldn't really understand the controversy. So I kind of skipped it. <laughs> no, no I mean, shit. what's, yeah, I mean, exactly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're going to get some angry bird watchers coming after us now. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so it, it kind of also brushes up against like the, uh, in, it, in contrast to this, in contrast to just bird watching, which is a hobby. There are, um, ornithologists is the scientific study of birds. Uh-huh. So th- if you're a, a professional scientist studying birds you're an ornithologist not a birder and um but but what's interesting about it is that the the two fields sort of overlap in some ways because of the hobby aspect of looking at birds can Uh be useful to an ornithologist because they can't be in a million different places at once or set up sensors and you know back in the 1900s 1800s like you didn't have computers or anything so having a community was kind of beneficial uh, so yeah, let's get into a little bit more of the history of it. Okay. So birding really grew in popularity in the late 18th century in Britain. Okay. All right. Uh, and mostly by the works of four gentlemen, uh, Gilbert White, Thomas Bewick, George Montague, and John Clare. These guys were mostly like naturalists and early natural history buffs. Uh, John Clare was actually an English poet. And uh, he was considered one of the best English poets and, and, a, and a, a poet about natural history and and, it, and his his poems kind of led to people being more mindful of conservation okay and that's really where a lot of bird watching and birding comes into play is, is in conservation. conservation yeah um so yeah the phrase bird watching actually appeared for the first time as a title of a book bird watching by edmund Seelis in 1901 what should we call this uh, <laughs> hobby that we have here well let's, let's, let's what go do, right what on do the we nose. do well we <laughs> watch and what are we watching birds <laughs> so in the uh in the 1800s <laughs> this is kind of funny okay uh in the 1800s they were just shooting the birds and going over and seeing what kind of bird they was <laughs> <laughs> but so but then the advent of binoculars and field guides uh kind of changed it where like guys stop shooting these birds yeah you don't need to shoot them you just well. you've seen it and there it is there's the cardinal it's on the tree Got the field guy here. It says other people found it here. Stop shooting them. Stop it. Uh, and that was actually... And so the first field guide was published by Florence Bailey in 1889 called uh, Birds Through an Opera Glass. An opera glass? An opera glass. Um, and I'm then not sure 18, that I know what an opera glass is. 
I don't know either. Actually, I assume it's uh, maybe maybe it was a colloquial term for binoculars or something, telescope or something. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, You know what that was? It was probably those bifocals that people took the opera. Oh yeah, you're probably right. right. Yeah, there's like the double monocle thing. Yeah, you're probably right about that. Um, And also, just to you know, a little data point about the popularity in this time in 1897, a book called Bird Neighbors Uh by Nelt G. Nelt J. Blanchon sold 250,000 copies. What year? 1897. Okay. I mean, 250,000 copies. Yeah. I, I can't imagine there was just a ton of distribution at that time. I mean, it's just, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, I assume that he was selling to like educational, like universities and stuff maybe. Could be, but I'm going to get to a point here that okay. I think is going to kind of blow your mind. Oh. Yeah. Man, that's crazy. <laughs> right. Um so yeah, then you had the rise of conservation societies. In the U.S., we had the Audubon Society. Yeah. And in uh, Great Britain, there was the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds. In the first half of the 20th century, the struggle between observation for like taxonomy only, like we're just trying to find out how many birds there are and where they are, uh, was kind of fighting with the more scientific-minded viewpoint of people that were focusing more on the ecological study okay. of, of birds. So how birds interact with their environment, how many there are, and the effects of their behaviors on on the planet and their environment, right? So like maybe there are too many birds here and it's affecting something else, and let's study that. They're or, decimating the grub worm population. <laughs> <laughs> so we need these grub worms. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so in the mid 1900s, it kind of went towards more of an ecological study and the, the hobby aspect of it that could still be good, good for taxonomy and, and, and maintaining and supporting the scientific community was still going on. But I, I I think that's about right. Like you go look at all the birds you want, but like, let's also have a main focus on science and, Mm -hmm. and how, and how the, how the birds are being affected by the environment and how the birds are affecting the environment. Cohabitation. Um, yeah. Is that what that is? <laughs> uh, 1920s, so kind of going along with your topic, uh, the advent of cars and planes made it easier for people to travel to go see a bird in another part of the country. So it kind of grew beyond just like, oh, I found, or I'm looking at the back of my window, in my yeah. house, I see this bird and, and that. Right. So people could get in their cars and drive however, hundreds of miles. It also gave people two new instruments with which to murder birds. That is true. Yes. Yes. So they weren't shooting them anymore, but we were r- running Ram- into them with their cars. Ramming them with cars. Getting caught in their engines. Blowing them out our engines. <laughs> yeah. um, and then after World War II, this is kind of a, 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 something I didn't even think about. Uh, binoculars yeah. had to have been mass, produ- mass produced at that time. Yep. So they just made the act of watching birds just so much more accessible. Mm-hmm. Just a ton yeah. of binoculars around. Yeah. Huh. Um, so... Who is birding? What are they watching? And what are they spending? <laughs> Big topic name. Well, I'm here. not going to say who because I don't want to comment on anybody. But they're watching <laughs> birds. Uh, so, and I don't know what they're spending. Uh, all right. So, the Fish and Wildlife Society put out a study in 2013 about, they put out one in 2011 and then an addendum in 2013. So, to be counted as a birder, an individual must have either taken a trip one mile or more from their home for the primary purpose of observing birds and or closely observed or tried to identify birds around the house. So you can be a birder in your house, Uh but a more active aspect of the community would be people who get in their cars and actually drive to go see these things. Obviously the people in their house are a larger portion of the group. Michael, do you know how many birders there are in the United States? Could you give me a guess? Well, so I have a question. Okay. 
do birders have to identify themselves as birders? Like, no. So I'm going as how many? I'm going as to be counted as a birder. Yeah. An individual must have either taken a trip one mile or right. more from home for the primary purpose of observing birds. Yes. Uh, or they're viewing around their house. So I guess technically they might not be like identifying themselves as a right. birder, but they are doing birding activities at their house. I mean, like I, my grandfather has like taken me around his big like yard before and like we've looked at birds. So am I a birder? You only have to do it one time? I think your grandfather would be more of the birder. Okay. And you you might not be counted. <laughs> the bird that. apprentice? Maybe. Okay. The, the apprentice. So uh, how many, I would, how many say would you say in the States? Yeah. 350 million-ish people. Gotta be like... Three million. Three million. Yeah. Uh, 30 million. How many? 47 million. 47 million. 47 million birders is what they they estimate. Uh, 41 million around the home Uh and 18 million travel. There's crossover here. So those numbers don't add up to 47. Gotcha. Right. So there's crossover. You might be a traveler and and travel. Yeah. Yeah. So there's crossover. The average birder is 53 years old. Yes. uh, More likely to be female. Yes. White. And above average wealth and income, which does make sense. You got yeah, a lot of, of time on your hands. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, you're not out there working for a living. Well, I mean, I don't think uh, it doesn't pay the bills. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, this is a total hobby. Yes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like, what are they watching? Uh, well, there's a lot in here, but um, the most the most viewed were water waterfowl, so like ducks and geese. Uh, and then birds of prey, so people trying yeah. to go see hawks and stuff. That's what I'd be into. Yeah, some, and then some talons. Um, ta- yeah, yeah. Maybe you'd see them like grab a fish or something, or a, or a rabbit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then songbirds would be the final. So like uh, um, cardinal or Parakeet. something. Yeah. Uh, and then the, and then there's like a other section of be like herons and shorebirds. So like pelicans, osprey. And, yeah, osprey, seagulls. Uh-huh. <laughs> Pigeons. Um, I pulled up the 10 most wanted birds in North America. So these would be like the birds that people are really trying to go after and see. These birds are on the dream list. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. These people have lists and they're like, oh, you've seen a number one, uh-huh. California condor. Oh, that's number one? That's number one. Okay. Number two is a whooping crane. Wait, do I know any of these birds? Because I should probably try and guess, I think. Um, <laughs> they're, kind of, they're kind of detailed. A Baltimore Oriole. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> no, all right. Don't think so. maybe the uh, Toronto the, Blue Jay. Maybe uh, I always thought it was maybe when I saw the owl. It was the uh, I think the spotted owl was on okay. here. Was, was, is the, the bald eagle not on there? Um, I don't think it, bald eagles aren't that hard to find. Oh, these I think so. There's an element of these that are are there's there's a rarity aspect to gotcha. them. Gotcha. My computer is freaking out. Sorry. All right. Um, there is the did I say the whooping crane? You did. Uh, the elf owl. Elf owl, elf owl, uh, the the gir falcon, G Y R falcon, <laughs> the gir falcon, the gir falcon, uh, the Atlantic puffin, very Ooh. cute little bird, yeah, uh, the spotted owl, from the picture it looks like it's kind of in a desert climate, yes, uh, Kirtland's warbler, what am I and love this name, the warbler, just as like warbler, a, yeah, just as a type of bird. Uh, the ferruginous pygmy owl, number eight. Ferruginous pygmy uh, owl. The green jay. Wow, it's got a cool blue head on it. It's kind of cool. Green jay. In 1981, University of Missouri biologist Douglas Gay, you watched an oh. adult jay insert a twig beneath a piece of bark to extract and eat insects. The green jay. What a genius. Yeah. 
And then number 10, the blue-footed booby. Which is extinct, I thought. Uh-huh. Oh, that's the dodo bird. <laughs> I was like, wow, you, didn't, you knew about this thing. It's got these really cool... Well, like, it's, it's also, it's booby. Booby, yeah. I'm pretty sure it's booby, right? Booby? Booby. Booby. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, boobies and other native birds that breed on islands in the Gulf of California have benefited from... Oh, they have the rat eradication project. About from the what? The rat eradication project. Yeah, interesting. So this one has these really cool blue feet. Yeah. Really cool. Um, Just back to my notes here. Uh, So yeah, so those are some of the birds that people are going after. I'm looking at pictures of them right now. They're pretty interesting looking birds. Yeah. Well, maybe uh, we'll put that on our our blog post. Wouldn't get me out of the house. All right. Well, so, all right, let's talk about the economics. How much people are spending on this? Yeah. So $41 billion annually, right? $41 billion annually is spent on trip-related expenditures and right. equipment. Uh, 666,000 jobs, $107 billion in total industry output. 66,000 so, jobs? Was that like park rangers? I think so. I mean, or... or That's kind of, I mean... I, this is where I think it gets a little funny, yeah. just in terms of how they're counting this. Is that um, like a, a, a sales clerk at Dick's who sells, like, binoculars? I don't know if they're counting that, but maybe, maybe they are. I think that, so in, I, a little bit in the backstory of what they'd said, they, they, they said, if you make a birdhouse, and birdhouses and bird feeders is a huge part of this, mm. from a, like a, oh, you're bir- you put up a bird feeder in your backyard, and now you're technically a birder from, by their definition. Okay. You know, when we were in Arizona, we had like a hummingbird feeder. Yeah. I'm not necessarily a birder. It's kind of, you're a birder. All right, well, throw me into it. Throw me into it. Um, so yeah, I think this is where it gets a little funny. Like, okay. uh, oh, I sold you the wood that you used to make a birdhouse. Does, right. does that mean it's a job for me? I just, I don't really care what you did with the wood. Uh, stop talking to me about the wood. <laughs> go make your go, birdhouse. Go make your birdhouse. I made a birdhouse when I was younger. Made yeah, like I did a wood too. Shopping the, uh, we made them and sold them for charity or something. Yeah. Maybe like a Ronald McDonald house or something maybe. Huh. I don't know. Uh, what, what, didn't you say you had the birdhouse with the lookout mountain uh, no, on top uh, of it, the I, farmhouse? What was Rock it? Rock City. Rock City. A yeah, neighbor. See Rock City. Uh, somebody in, our, in my mom's neighborhood has one of those. Yeah. There you yeah. go. It's kind of connecting topics here, Michael. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, uh, what, okay, so this is an activity I thought was kind of fun that they do. Mm. Uh, it's called the Christmas bird count, and it's a bird census. And so birders count all the birds uh, in the Western Hemisphere. They don't count all the birds. But they, they go out and like, I think like tens of thousands of people participate in this every year. They, and they, they have some coordination with it where a certain group of people take over a certain 15 square kilometer radius area. Yeah. And they go try to find all the birds. And it's not just on Christmas Day. It, it happens. Um, actually, today is the last day of the Christmas bird count goes through January 5th. It starts like mid-December, December 14th, I think. Uh-huh. Uh, so, yeah, I, mean, I thought that was kind of an interesting... They try. They just drive like around that fifteen kilometer, and they just count birds. They count birds. So they, count, they try to break them down by by species. Okay. And so so you can have a census every year of oh how many of these types of birds were here, mm-hmm. how many birds were there, and compare those and contrast those against other years and, and find trends. Right. So so that's where I think the scientific element can be benefited from from this. However, you're 
you're not 100% sure how much of the scientific method is being used in the collection of this, well, but yeah, you're I mean, kind of just taking them <clears> at, at You could count the same guess. bird 30 times. Yeah, exactly. I was wondering that too. There must be some way that they do that. Some little devil, some little devil bird that knows it's the census time just flying around all over this 15 kilometers. Just confusing people. Well, that and a lot more work in the south because a lot of them fly south through the winter. Ah, yes. Right? Well, so spring and fall are a big time for bird is that watching. migration season? Migration season, yeah. Getting... Getting north during the summer and you know flying south for the for the winter. Yeah, uh, and also time like a lot of in the morning, uh, birds are just they wake up, they start singing. Yeah, it's great bird time. Love it. <laughs> Keep it down. <laughs> um, there's bird competitions, birding competitions. So there's a something called a big year in the birding community. Okay, there's actually a movie. With Steve Martin, Jack Black, and Owen Wilson came out in I think like 2013, called The Big Year, and of course you know they're three guys kind of in a midlife crisis phase, and they want to go on like a bucket list type trip to go find as many birds as they can in one year. That that's what a big year is. Well, you try to go find as many as you can in one year. I'm really surprised I haven't heard of this this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I think the trailer looks kind of good. I watched All right. it. All right. Um, and there's also a big day. You okay. Go see how many birds you can find in one day. Okay. An amazing. I mean, some of these guys have found some a lot of birds in one day. Kind of crazy. How do they uh, like prove they found all these birds in a day? Again, this this goes back to this etiquette aspect. Uh-huh. So you, can, I mean, if you take a picture, this of is it, why I want controversies. If oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll follow up with on the next episode. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I mean, if you take a picture of it, it makes it a lot more believable. Like you took a picture, you have proof it's there. Yeah. But maybe if you go record it, does that like re- just record the song that that it sings? Is that enough? Or maybe it's so high up in a tree you can't actually put your eyes on it, but you know it's there. I don't know. I don't Get know how climbing. I feel about this. Yeah. All right. So on to my core topic, my core section. Man, that's crazy. That's gonna blow my mind. You said. Uh, yeah, I think it might. Okay. Um, so. There are about 10,000 species of birds. Okay. And only a small number of people have seen more than 7,000. That's like a, a barrier. 7,000 okay. is like when it goes to, wow. If you've seen more than 7,000, you're an elite bird watcher. Mm-hmm. Seen, seven, seen more than 7,000 and like have actively been looking to see 7,000. You need to be actively looking you're to like, see 7,000. Okay, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, like you, it's not like... It's not like, oh, I traveled the world as a kid and I've been in places where there's millions of species or I guess thousands of species of birds. There's only 10,000 species of birds? Yeah. Probably about 10,000 species of birds in the Amazon alone. Anyway. Maybe. I don't know. That's what this is saying. Okay. Uh, 10,000 is like the, the accepted number. And 7,000 is like the shelf of being like elite. You get a patch. Yeah. Um, so this is kind of funny. When, if, when a rare bird is found, it goes out over the, over the sound waves, you know, out of, into the community. And now people know where this bird is. This is called twitching. Or in the, and that's what they call it in, the, in Britain. In the U.S., it's called chasing. Okay. So when you're chasing a rare bird that's been found. So uh, 2,500 people traveled to Kent, which I believe is in England, yes. to view a golden-winged warbler, uh-huh. uh, which is actually native of North America. So one out that, man, you can see this 2,500 people get in their car and drive there just to see this bird. Kind of crazy. 
there, yeah. I mean, you couldn't just go to like, I guess people in, in England did that. People in England did that. Okay. Yeah. Because they're like, yeah. how did this get over yeah. here? Something like that. Yeah. Um, here you just go over to Minnesota or something and yeah, and see and find it. The yeah, it may not okay. be as big of a thing here as it is there. Gotcha. Um, if a birder bails on a twitch, <laughs> it's called uh, it's called dipping out. Oh, you dipped out. I think it's used in other ways. And you other people dip out of stuff. Mm. Um, if others see the bird while that other person didn't see it, they feel gripped off. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and when a twitcher conceals the location of a bird they found, it's called suppression. Yeah. Suppression. Uh, some famous bird watcher. I'm going to list one. Her name is Phoebe Snetzinger. Famous. She's a famous bird watcher. In the world of bird watching, I assume. Yes. Okay. Uh, but I, she has an incredible life. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just, I mean, so she's the daughter of Leo Burnett, who was a famous advertising agent. He, he owned the Leo Burnett agency and was a, a Big mad, a madman like Leo Burnett. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. So her, his daughter, Phoebe, yes, was diagnosed with melanoma in her fifties. Okay, and decided that she was going to spend her fortune to go see all these birds. Okay, she was gang raped in Papua New Guinea. She had malaria. She was in a hostage situation in Ethiopia, and she ended up dying in a car accident. I think in Madagascar. But at the end of her life, she saw 8,040 bird species. And she published a book um, called Something something Borrowed. Birding through. on Borrowed Time? Yes. That's it. Uh, Such a fast Googler. Yeah. Well, I wanted to look her up. Yeah. Uh, Just you, to go see the birds? What do you like, say to that? That's nuts. I In any, in, in any pursuit, it's... And from any perspective, it can be seen as meaningless, I think. Oh, for so, sure. So the cannonball run that I did, so stupid. Climbing right. Mount Everest, so stupid. Climbing El Capitan, kind of, it could be seen as stupid. Why don't you just put on a rope, man? Yeah. Birding, kind of the same thing. Like, I get it. Uh, it's sort of like a sense of adventure. It's, sure. There's a element of um, ownership to seeing it, you know? Like, I've done, I've have a competition aspect to it there. Right. I get it. Yeah, yeah. No, I just mean that's like... She had a lot of terrible things happen to her. Oh man, all in all, in the pursuit of that, it's crazy. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. She died. Yeah, nineteen ninety nine. But she, I, I kind of liked her, her like newfound zest on life, and and used birding right as a as an outlet for it, for it. Yeah. Yeah. She huh. actually went to Alaska mm-hmm. when, and then she came back and found out that her cancer was in remission. Mm-hmm. And and then from there decided to go on, I think, around the world trying to find these birds. Interesting. Yeah. Phoebe Snetzinger. Kind of, I'm surprised there's not a movie about that, about her. I mean, if we're going to make a movie with Steve Martin and Jack Black, maybe we should make a movie about the most famous, one of the most famous birding and badass women, really. Yeah. Phoebe Snetzinger. All right, Phoebe. Yeah. That is uh, birding. And actually... Uh, Do you want to play us some bird sounds? I don't know. Well, I did find it funny. Uh, the, did you know the Masters that one year where they CBS pipes in? Yeah, they pump in because there's uh, not a single bird on the grounds there. And a birder calls in and goes, uh, those are not native to yeah. North Georgia. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, what, did you fly in some uh, uh, excuse me. Alaskan herons? Because, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Jim Nance. That's yeah. not accurate. 
And then I think I think CBS like changed their calls now to I think the birds are native to North Georgia. It's just so funny that somebody would do that. Right. Well, there's awesome. still yeah, there's still no birds on the grounds there. Yeah, no, yeah. they get like shocked by electric currents in the air or something. They fly <laughs> through. <laughs> Augusta has some kind of special no military grade yeah. weapon there. Yeah, that just destroys anything. I wonder why. Air. Like they just don't like them because it's supposed to be pristine, and like birds would they would mess it up. They would like knock like leaves out of the trees and build nests mm, and stuff mm, like that. Pests. You won't see like a pine piece of pine straw on the ground out there out of place. Yeah. No, it's like you're walking around at a painting or something. Yeah. There's yeah. not a pine cone on the ground. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah, it is. You think about the, how, what they have to do to get it to be like that. It's like, eh, there might be some exploitation going on around yeah, there. Maybe, maybe anyway, that's for another topic. Yeah. Maybe, maybe for later this year, maybe for April. Um, uh, good. Yeah, birding. Birding. I'm going to go read more about Phoebe Snetzinger. I, I just found a Vox article that says Phoebe Snetzinger. Uh, lived a life that proves middle-aged bird, wa- bird watchers can be action heroes. Yeah. Yeah. So. I think it sounds good. I'm going to read that article. Read it. Uh, that's going to do it for today. Sounds good. Do we go long? I don't even know how, how long this was. Uh, I think it's a little long, but, you know, enjoy it. I think yeah. there were two good topics. Roaring 20s, <clears throat> bird watching. <laughs> Everybody, uh, keep your thoughts with Australia. Yep. Send some money if you can. Send, do it. Don't well, listen uh, to me. I'm an idiot. <laughs> no, do, do what he said as well, but do it now if you can. Yeah. Donate what you can. Share a link or something if you, if you can yeah, do that. Yeah. Um, and we will be back next week. See ya. So long.